Second Chronicles chapter 5. And we looked at three chapters on Tuesday night, chapters 3, 4, and 5. And it was all Solomon building the temple. It took over a decade. The planning was like four years getting ready after he became king. And then after that, he, he built the temple, took over seven years. And it was quite a process. If you think just a few weeks ago, we we're looking at David dedicating all that he, pretty much all of his personal wealth to the temple being built. It had always been his vision and his dream to build the temple. And then, you know, he stepped into eternity at the age of 70 and passed the baton of the work. He gave Solomon, his son, the plans, the people, and the possessions to do it. And it took over a decade. And so as we come to the text tonight, we're coming into this part of the story where Solomon has completed it. He's completed the building. And now they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the surrounding region of Jerusalem into the place where the temple is there on Mount Moriah. And they're going to have this huge celebration Next week, we'll just get one chapter. We did three chapters this week. We'll get one chapter because it's the prayer at the dedication. And then the following week, we get a couple more chapters that deal with events on the heels of that. So this story of this dedication, this temple, is the predominant theme for this first part of Second Chronicles as a central place of worship, the house of God for the nation of Israel. And we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5. So all the work of Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold, all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Now Solomon had assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers and the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord up from the city of Zion, uh, up from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with the king, at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim, the angels. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets, that is the Ten Commandments, which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping in their divisions, and the Levites who were singers, all those of Asaph, Heman, and Jethun, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets." Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What an amazing event. When we look at the Word of God, 
there are stories, but not a whole lot of them, where eternity comes into time, space, and matter and oversees it. For example, like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, when they're in the fire and the Lord comes there with them in the fire, eternity comes in of the superior dimension over this dimension, and they're not burned, they don't smell like fire. There's times like this in the Bible where God just, he intervenes, like Elijah's chariot coming for Elijah, where the curtain opens up and eternity and the reality of eternal realm and the dimension that's always been and will always be, and that is the destiny of all human beings to go to, reveals itself in time, space, and matter, our three-dimensional universe. This is one of those times. There's not that many verses in this chapter, but it is describing for us in historical record, this day that was absolutely amazing. I talked about this on Tuesday night. If you knew, you saw on the news or you heard by word of mouth that they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the other part of Jerusalem over to this part of Jerusalem, I mean, once in a lifetime experience to see the Ark being carried by the priest. I mean, it doesn't happen that often. And you would have told your cousins, you would have told your relatives, if you're up there in the Sea of Galilee, like, hey, we got to be there in two days or we're going to miss this. This is one of those days in 6,000 years of human history that is unlike any other day. This day is a really, really special day. And if you saw it, you got it, you were there, and it was an amazing event to be there. Once in a lifetime. Absolutely a once in a lifetime event to see this. And what an exciting event it is because they're dedicating the house of God. The temple is referred to as the house of God. It was the central place of worship for Israel the nation of Israel, and for centuries, the Israelites would come there to to connect with God. It was much like when you come to your local church here at Worship Generation, Tuesday and Saturday, to worship the Lord, to fellowship with other people, to be built up in the Word of God, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. That's what it was for them. Now, as I mentioned, next week we'll get the prayer of Solomon for what would happen for centuries to come at the temple. But tonight we get this holy day where they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant and it's all happening. Everybody is there. You notice that it says all the elders of Israel, they're there. The chiefs of the 12 tribes are there. Everyone that's a priest, no one's got the day off. They're all there. They're ready for service. There's so many priests, they're not even in order. They're not even in order. It's just like, it's like a military unit. It's like, what unit are you? You know, which, which division are you? It's just, they're all there. It's happening. It's happening. Something really special is happening because eternity is going to come to time. The presence of the Lord is going to overwhelm time and reveal himself in time. To this generation, on this one day, in a very unique in special way. And so there's a lot for us to look at this and learn from. In the previous two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, we saw the contrast of things that were inside the temple versus outside the temple. And then in this fifth chapter here, we see what happens when it all merges together. So tonight we're going to look at this text, and our title is Outside, Inside, the Cloud, and the House of God. That's a long title. Outside, inside the cloud and the house of God. Because our context, it is the house of God. It's the place of worship. So we want to think about when we come together with the Lord as a church family, whether it's here or it's uh, people with Bill Welsh tomorrow morning at 
Calvary Chapel Refuge or Calvary Costa Mesa with Brian Broderson or wherever it might be. We need to picture that local church coming together and, and how we come together in fellowship like we have done tonight. And here tonight we are worship generation and the local church connected with the universal church. And so that's who we are. We want to take this context of this house of God for them and think of us as the church tonight and the body of Christ in general with the local place of worship and that's how we're going to really look at this text tonight. The first thing we want to talk about is outside. Outside is very interesting. There's such a contrast between what's going on outside the temple and inside. It's, it's, you can't miss it. Outside is sin. Outside is death. Outside is sacrifices. Outside is the earth. Outside is humanity. Outside is oxen. And outside the color of things is bronze. The altar that was for animal sacrifices outside in front of the temple was bronze. It was 20 by 20. It's a big altar. It's a huge barbecue, basically. And it's just an endless cycle of offerings for sin. Sin offerings, burn offerings, trespass offerings, heave offerings, free will offerings. All that the book of Leviticus described with offerings, it is that. But above all else, the bronze altar is a place of blood. In fact, the altar, the idea behind the altar for the Jews in the Old Testament is killing place. So we can say that outside in the courtyard there is the killing place. And in verses 1 through 6, they're killing. They are sacrificing animals without number. It's innumerable. Did you catch that? It's innumerable. Bulls, goats, it says right there. They were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. I mean, as fast as they can get the the livestock there, they're, they're executing them and sacrificing them. It's messy business. There's blood and there's a reality. Outside of this temple with that bronze altar, with four oxen, backed into each other, so they're all backed into each other, facing the four directions of north, south, east, west. It's oxen. The four oxen backed in, like backed into a corner. Animals, animals of work and labor. The bronze altar, the blood, the sacrifices. It takes us back to everything that God shows us in his word. That in Genesis, when that original fall, when God had said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat from this tree, you will die. And we know that when they chose to rebel against God and eat from that fruit, sin entered the world, thus death entered the universe. And those scientific laws, including the law of entropy, are in full effect that everything is in a state of decay. And even as the universe expands, it is actually dying as it's expanding. Trillions of galaxies, billions of people were born and were born to die. We die. Even as a child's developing, it's still under the death sentence, and the death sentence is over us. You younger people, you look so beautiful and all that, and that's wonderful and handsome. And there comes a point when you think in your 40s, I can still look good. You got to get this angle. And your 50s, like, hey, we can still save this. In your 60s, you just say, you know, that's just the way I look. Okay? Because entropy is working. And, you, you know, it, it, some people do, you know, look better with some adjustments, you know? You know what I'm saying? But in the end, like, you know, when you're 80, you're 80, and you're going to look 80. That's pretty much, no matter what you do at 60, you're still going to look 80 when you're 80. And that's okay. Because when you're 80, you're 80, and you want to be 
it's honorable to have gray hair and have lived a good life of faith when you're 80. And that's who I want to be when I'm 80. And hopefully that's who you want to be when you're 80. But in this universe of time, space, and matter, where planet Earth is the central object of everything that God's ever done in this universe, for it's this planet where he made us in his image, and it's this planet where he sent his son to die for our sins, everything in this universe revolves around this planet and what happened at this very piece of land where this temple was dedicated. Outside is man. Outside is sin, sinful man. Outside is man under a death sentence. Outside is earth and three dimensions of time, space, and matter. Outside the temple at this day is the human experience of created beings in a fallen world offering up sacrifices for substitution to make atonement or atonement with God for their sins. Outside the holy temple is sinful humanity. And it takes us right back to not only Genesis 3 and the promises that God would fix that, but even Romans 3 where it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're told in Romans 6, 23 that the wages of sin is death. And we know that in the first Adam, sin entered the world and thus sin comes to all people. And we know that. Most of us understand that and believe that. But this imagery makes that so clear. These animals being sacrificed, this altar, this bronze altar, and these oxen, it's all because of sin. And we talk about man being sinful and God being holy and us being separated from God. We, in this, this landscape, in this mosaic of this story, we are the bronze altar. We are the sin. We are the death. We are the separation. We are humanity, and we are desperate. And there's blood being shed because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sins. And in this imagery, it's the blood of animals. Now, a thousand years before this, in 2000 B.C., because this is about 1000 B.C., there at Mount Moriah, because this is Mount Moriah, God sent Abraham there with his son Isaac to offer him up as a test of faith. And Abraham passed that test, did not offer up his son. He was willing to offer him up. And God said, no, now you've proven your faithfulness and you trust me and you believe in me. Uh, there's, your son will not be sacrificed, but there's a ram in the thicket. And God offered up the ram in the place. God provided the substitution. In fact, it said, in the mount of the Lord, he will provide. And there in this very place, a thousand years before this day, Abraham, the father of faith, symbolically offered up his son in obedience to the Lord. But another took the place, the ram, and God said he'd provide himself an offering for that sacrifice. Now, a thousand years later, in the same spot where David had stopped the plague for the census about ten years before, now all this animal sacrifice is happening. A thousand years later, Jesus would come to this very place and say, before Abraham, I am. And he'd say that he is God. And for that statement... He was crucified on the cross within a one-mile radius of this very place where this is happening. Where this bronze altar is, Golgotha is, if this is the exact spot, it's within a one-mile radius of it. It's all kind of the same mountain. Mount Moriah is like, like kind of like this. And the place of the skull, it's all right there. You can walk from one to the other, even this day, from the Dome of the Rock on Mount Moriah to Golgotha and the place of the skull. It's all like about a one-mile walking distance and the empty tomb that they think is Jesus is right nearby there as well. That goes back to the time of Christ. Outside, but the thing about being outside for them is would be the same for us. Those that were outside could symbolically come inside through faith. Because we know in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
And so they were saved by faith. Now, they were outside. They don't have the full understanding that we do in the new covenant. They had their covenants, the Adamic covenant, Noah's covenant, Abrahamic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant for the nation of Israel. They had their covenants. And they could know God as he revealed himself to them in increments. And faith was always at work because Abraham's the father of faith. And throughout the time of the God's covenant with Israel, they were always saved by faith. So we know as we think about being outside, faith was applied to them as is applied to us. Because we're told that we're saved by faith. We're told that we walk by faith. Our journey is a journey of faith. We're told that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. So even as they were sacrificing oxen and rams and these things outside, what they were doing was symbolically representing what Christ would do for us. And really, it was to move their faith in that sacrifice on their behalf, which ultimately would point to Christ. Because we're told by the blood of bulls and goats there can be no washing away completely of our sins. But it was Christ, the Son of God, who had to die in our place for our sins. So here we have the bronze altar with innumerable animal sacrifices, and it would be never-ending like world religion. It could never resolve it. Human philosophies, just never-ending, never-ending, never-ever-ending. But Hebrews tells us when Christ came, he came and died once for all, and is never offered up again. That's why when Christ died, the veil was torn there in the holy place, and there are no more animal sacrifices. Christ is the end of all the sacrifices. So all these innumerable animals, they're fulfilled in Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. That's outside. And so people, when they come to church, they're outside. If they don't know the Lord, they're outside. They need to be able to come here and be found inside and come to the place where they can know the Lord. Having traveled the world and seen many world religions and philosophies and how they are practiced and applied by people, it's like endless bulls and oxen and goats. Just endless, endless, because it cannot take away sins. Only Christ and the blood of God can atone for our sins. And all the human religions and all the human philosophies that are out there where people sense their guilt and their conviction, they cannot, it won't work. It can't happen. They might have faith, but they have faith in Humans that are sinful, therefore, are canceled out to remove their sins. So, for example, people's faith in Buddha or Moses. Moses can't save you and Buddha can't save you. They're sinners. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we could become the righteous of God through our faith in him. Outside is sinful man. And the only way that sinful man gets inside is through the blood of not of the oxen and goats and rams and lambs, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what God was teaching them. And so our fullness of this, this, what we see in this symbolism is, is what Christ has done for us. And we have our faith in that. Our faith is in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So once we come and we come to the house of God and we have our faith in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we are not outside. We can come inside. But until then, hey, I've, had, I've been preaching for 35 years, and I've had plenty of people walk out on me. I've had plenty of people yell at me. I've had plenty of people argue with me. And I've had people sit under me for years and still not be regenerated and born again. And who can know such things? This much I know. None of us are going to see the glory until we come to not the bronze altar, but the cross of Calvary with faith in Jesus Christ, who is the author of and finisher of our faith. And you need to know tonight that your 
you've done that. And if you haven't done that, you want to do that. I know most of you, but not all of you. It's only in faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we might, know, might as well be there in Jerusalem offering up bulls and oxen right now, going in circles, because that's, that's what human philosophies and world religion is. Faith. When they offered up those sheep and oxen, they had to have faith. But it was faith for a future that would happen, not from what Abraham did a thousand years before with his son on that mountain, but what God would do a thousand years later with his son on that mountain at the cross of Calvary. Our fullest faith is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that takes us from outside to inside. But we need to know we're sinful people. And the best people in the world, the nicest people in the world aren't going anywhere. They're not getting in the holy place if they're not coming by the blood of the Lamb. Which brings us to the second thing tonight. Outside, inside, and the cloud in the house of God. Well, inside, we see in verses 7 through 10, in this phrase where they brought the Ark of the Covenant, it says in verse 7, Then the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. Now, we know in the tabernacle and then the temple, when God told them how to build the tabernacle 500 years before, and now the temple with Solomon, that this, this house of God had a, a small area in the back. It was one-third of that, the tent, if you will. And the back third was called the most holy of holies or the holy place. Then the two-thirds here was the, the holy entrance area. So the, most, the holy of holies and the holy place, there's a distinction. And here was the showbread and the altar of incense and the lamp and these things that the priest serviced throughout the week in serving the Lord. And then the inner court, that only once a year, that was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And if you recall, only one day a year would a human being go in there. It was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. First it was Aaron, and then it was the descendants of Aaron. And what would happen is they'd be out there at that bronze altar, and there'd be a sacrifice... And they'd go in with the blood of that sacrifice, and the high priest would go in there once a year, and he'd sprinkle the blood in the holiest of holy place upon the altar, the Ark of the Covenant. He'd sprinkle it there. Then he'd go back out, and then he'd get more blood, and he'd go in a second time, and he'd offer it for the people, for himself and the people. So he recognized his own sinful nature, and then he recognized the sinful nature of the people. He would confess the sins of the people, and there was the two goats, because the one goat was sacrificed, then the other goat was a scapegoat, where he would pray, if you will, over the scapegoat, and then they'd send the scapegoat into the wilderness. So one goat would die with the blood, and the other goat would be released where you could never see it again, which is very symbolic of what it says in the Psalms, so far as the east is from the west, so far has it removed our sins from us. When they released that scapegoat in the Judean wilderness, you weren't supposed to go looking for it. When you receive forgiveness for Christ, you're not supposed to go looking for You're not supposed to step up today on June 10th and look for what was forgiven for, you know, on June 3rd. It's, it's, that's why Christ died. The devil and your flesh will take you backwards, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit will always take you forward. And that's why he gave us the symbolism of the scapegoat. But, you know, the blood on the altar was out there, the bronze altar, there's innumerable offerings. But on the Yom Kippur day, the blood would come in for one day of the year for the atonement for the high priest and for the people, which, of course, is why we're told Jesus is not a high priest according to the priesthood of Leviticus, where they had to make offerings for their own sins. He's in the order of Melchizedek. He's, he has no beginning or no ending. And 
His is the superior priesthood. So when we come to Jesus through faith as our high priest, he's not like a son of Aaron who's going to live and die and sprinkle blood for his own sins once a year. No, he's the son of God who died once, not for his sins, but for our sins. And we're told in Hebrews, he ever lives and intercedes for us in our journey. He's our great high priest. Jesus didn't enter the Holy of Holies. He, entered, he came from the Holy of Holies and he returned to the Holy of Holies, the one in heaven. Because we're told in Hebrews that the design of the Holy, Holy of Holies and the Holy Place is a model from heaven. We're told in Hebrews that when God gave the instruction for the tabernacle and then followed by Solomon for the temple, that it's a model, a pattern of things above. This isn't some conjunction of men like the Philistines building a temple for Dagon. Some ideas of men. People make gods in their own image. So you have an angry God, a lustful God, a bitter God, all those things. But God is God. He is who he is, apart from what anyone thinks of him. I am that I am, he said to Moses. He is self-contained as himself. He is who he is. Let God be true, every man a liar. And when he gave them a design for the holy place and the holiest of holies, it were told it's a pattern of heaven. It's, it's something revealing of heaven. And now contrast his holy place to the altar outside, because outside is sin, man, sin, death, earth, bronze, humanity, oxen, and a created fallen world. Inside is God, perfection, life, heaven, angels, and gold, and the ultimate reality of the universe. When the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, he would see something that was a greater reality than anything he knew in time, space, and matter. Outside, bronze. Inside, gold. Outside, oxen. Inside, angels. The cherubim, seraphim, the angels. Everything inside that Holy of Holies spoke of heaven. The next dimension, the eternal dimension, the one that's over this one. Everything outside is time, space, and matter. We know the earth and the universe is going to fade away. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And we know that heaven exists eternally outside of time. It has nothing to do with time. Outside is a temporal reality. Inside is the eternal reality. And the high priest would see it once a year. That is heaven. That represents heaven. Bronze, the altar, gold. Oxen, angels. Fallen man, holy God. Sinful man, holy God. In that holy place with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. So now the Ark of the Covenant was carried on the poles. It's like a treasure chest. Had the angels on top of it. The mercy seat. And inside was the Ten Commandments. God's law, perfect. God's law is perfect. If we could be perfect, it would be a perfect law to uphold. But we can't uphold it because we're sinful. It's our tutor to bring us to Christ. It teaches us you can't save yourself by being good. You have to be saved by being under the blood with Jesus. And so that righteousness of God revealed through the law would consume fallen humanity. Thus it's sealed and the mercy seat is over it. And the angels... It's hard to find a greater contrast than the bronze altar outside the temple and the holies of holies inside the temple. They couldn't be more opposite. One represents sinful man and his, uh, the inability of sinful man to save himself, the inability of, of oxen and sheep to save him and that blood, and the other inside represents God's holiness. I am that I am, totally self-sustained in his universe, all-knowing, all-powerful, Omnipresent, all present. 
Maybe you're like me. When I was a kid growing up in Virginia, you know, I went to all those Catholic churches younger, and then I went to base chapels to Catholic services, and I'd look at the stained glass images of Jesus and the Via Della Rosa and stuff like that, the whole journey to the cross. I'd walk through the woods of Virginia by myself there at Quantico on the base looking for turtles, go down the Potomac River, see the guys fishing and stuff. Man, it was a different time. It was a good time. Pick holly. Holly leaves to build a wreath for my mom, wild blackberries. My mom would make pies from it. What a great memory. But I'll tell you what I did when I used to walk through the woods of Virginia between first and third grade and even in fourth and fifth after we moved to Charlottesville. I used to think about God. I used to think about God. And I think about God, and this is what I, you know, I share this sometimes, but not that often. I think, well, if God made me, who made God? Right? Because people call pastor's perspective and to every man an answer for that. You know, like, hey, who made God? You know, like, that's one of those basic questions. Like, and I think about, like, I would just kind of like, wow, like, God made me, but how could God exist and always exist? But I know he exists because, you know, like, I, I don't get away with anything. And I know, like, like how, how does that work? And I just... It wasn't until years later that I realized that as are the heavens are above the earth, so is God in his ways above and beyond us. How can a finite mind understand an infinite mind? So the thing formed, say the thing deformed it, what are you doing and how did you do it? I mean, the whole book, the book of Job is pretty much four smart guys trying to figure out how it all works out with God. And then God says, you're all wrong and the latest guy's wrong and I am the Lord and that's that. Ask Job to pray for you and intercede for you, and we'll restore him, and then you guys can go home and live your lives. They're not the first group of people to sit around and speculate God's nature, God's character, and all that kind of stuff. But one thing we know about God's nature and his character is that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In this holy place, there's just perfection. There's no evil thoughts, jaded thoughts, skewed thoughts, rude jokes, vulgar things. It's just purity. It's a good thing the priests are in white robes this day. Yes and amen. It's a good thing they're singing praises to the Lord, too. Yes and amen. Good thing they're singing about how the God is good, because God is good. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is good. God never does evil. Even just a few weeks ago, someone asked me, why does God allow evil? They actually said, is God evil? I said, he's not. But he has given his self-determination, and people are evil. As Haley even prayed, life is hard sometimes. And it is, and it's hard, because people are evil. Evil people do evil things to good people sometimes, and that's just the way it works. But God's bigger than that. That's where faith comes in. Faith at the altar that gets you inside the holy place, that you learn that things work together for good, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. No one's going to ever accuse God. On the day of the Lord, when people stand before the Lord, and we will, no one's going to accuse God of being evil. They're going to confess to Jesus Christ as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's what they're going to do. We can bow the knee in time or we can bow the knee in eternity, but the whole universe is about Jesus. And the Bible makes that very clear. God is light. See, we have faith at the bronze altar with the blood, but ultimately that faith gets us into the holy place through faith in Jesus Christ. And there, what we realize when we think about the Lord, or even me as a seven-year-old there in Quantico, thinking about the Lord, going to catechism and classes and thinking about God and all this stuff, We go back to what he said to Moses. I am who I am. He's the all-sufficient one. God is all-sufficient on his own. And on this side of time, we're in this side of time, space, and matter. By faith, we have to receive the things of eternity and believe them that God is 
you know, I have not seen nor ear heard those things that God has prepared for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. By faith we have to store up our treasures in heaven. By faith we have to set our mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. That's what we do by faith. Childlike faith, too, because unless we have faith like a child, we can by no means enter the kingdom of God. So body of Christ, WG, we're reminded tonight, don't park your car at the bronze altar. Have the faith, believe in the facts. The fact is, God is, I am that I am. Moses is like, I need a name. I am that I am. And when Jesus said, before Abraham, I am, they picked up stones to stone him because they knew he claimed to be God. And for this cause, they crucified him because he claimed to be God. I am that I am. We serve the Lord. There's so much we do know about the Lord, and there's so much we don't. And that makes heaven exciting. Because we're told, now we know in part, but then we'll know fully. When this corruptible puts on incorruptible. When this mortal puts on immortal, immortality. See, now we know in part, but then we'll know fully. Isn't that exciting? To get to heaven and know fully where there's no more tears and sorrows. At the bronze altar, plenty of tears and plenty of sorrow. Because there's sin and death and the human experience. In the holy of holies, in the presence of the Lord, no more tears, no more sorrow. Just praise and glory and four living creatures and 24 elders casting down their crowns saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. That's the holy of holies. That's the destiny of every believer saved by faith under the blood of Jesus Christ, born again of his spirit. So we have outside and inside, but then we have the cloud. So we have our faith outside with the blood being shed. We have the fact of who God is in the holy place, that he's holy, and we come believing who he is and what he says about himself and trusting in his nature and his character and who he is. And then we have the cloud. Oh, this glorious cloud. Verses 11 through 14. So 100 plus singers, in their white robes, singing with one as one, one sound to be heard praising, praising the Lord, thanking the Lord. Oh, man, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And they said he is good. So they're confessing again his person because everything about God is good. His mercy is an attribute. In other words, mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve judgment for sin. He put the judgment on his son. That's mercy. Grace is receiving the gift the free gift of eternal life through his son. And as they're proclaiming these truths about his person, his character, and his attributes, the cloud comes. Here comes the cloud. Worship generation, get ready for the day of the Lord. Listen to me, body of Christ. You get ready for the cloud because the cloud's coming for you and me too. The cloud's coming. Listen to me. The cloud is coming. The cloud will come for you. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming for you personally or me personally when he comes for us. And I've seen people greet Jesus as they've stepped into eternity. Or he's coming to planet Earth at his second return. So we're going to see him personally in a private cloud appearance, or we're going to see him when the whole universe sees his cloud. But know this about this cloud. God spoke to Israel from the cloud in the Old Testament. When he gave him the law, he spoke to him at Mount Sinai in the cloud. The cloud was over the the Holy of Holies as they traveled in the wilderness for 40 years. Here's the cloud here. When Gabriel declared to Mary that she would conceive as a virgin without having intimacy with a man, she said, how can this be? And he said, the cloud will come upon you. Even in the Immaculate Conception, the cloud is given there. The eternal presence of the Lord. Jesus, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
when he was there and Elijah and Moses appeared representing the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, he's there with Peter, John, and James. And Peter's like going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Hey, what do we do? Should we build tabernacles or something? And then the father spoke and said, this is my son, hear him. And the cloud was there. They were in the cloud. And when the cloud pulled back, all they saw was Jesus. But when the cloud was there, these three men, James was beheaded in the book of Acts. Peter was crucified upside down after the book of Acts. John was exiled to Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation. These three men, they said in 2 Peter, we've not followed cunningly, cunningly devised fables of men, but we are eyewitnesses of his glory. They were talking about when they saw Jesus in the cloud at Mount Sinai. His, his glory was like an earthen vessel. He's, like, he's in a human body, and then this event, the, the transfiguration, his glory was revealed like, Wow, like Revelation describes, you know, the glory, like him coming, like, we can't even imagine. But Peter, John, and James in time, space, and matter saw it because eternity came and the glory that he had from all that time. Even when Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, he talked about the glory he had before he came. In John chapter 1, when John was inviting us to give our lives to Christ, he said, we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. We beheld his glory. His glory was revealed. The cloud, the cloud came, and Jesus' glory was revealed to the three pillars of the early church, those three apostles. Then when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended in the cloud. Eternity came in the cloud, and he ascended. And we're told when he comes back, he's coming in the clouds. This cloud is <laughs> not gray May or June gloom. Southern California this cloud is the glory of the Lord. It's an eternal cloud that brings eternity into time, space, and matter. And Jesus will come back in the cloud to establish his reign in his second coming. In this appearance of the cloud, something beautiful happens. In this appearance of the cloud, the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord, just like the Mount of Transfiguration, is there with these men. The praise is going on outside. All this is happening. You know, 100 trumpets? Like, this is something special. You know, like, it's a poor comparison, but like the Rose Parade, when you see those big Midwest bands like Wisconsin coming down on, you know, the Rose Parade with all the trumpets and brass, and it's beautiful. I, growing up in the Marine Corps, we used to go hear the Marine Band all the time. Anytime the Marine Band was doing a big thing, Quantico, we'd go, we'd go hear it. Even when Timmy and Luke and I and my dad went back to D.C. about eight years ago, we went to, what is it, Ninth uh, and I, whatever, where you see the whole Marine Corps marching band. And all, it's so, when you hear trumpets and it's unified, it's so beautiful, it's powerful. How much more powerful this? They're, they're playing trumpets, cymbals, stringed instruments, and they're proclaiming God's praises like we've never experienced, I'm pretty certain. And then the glory came. As we're confessing his character and his attributes, the glory came, and they were overwhelmed. But he shared his presence with them. He shared his holy presence with sinful men in that cloud on this day. On this day, they all got to know the presence of the Lord. On this day, he, he, he brought it to those priests. He, he led them. Can you imagine the cloud and the guys come out like, everyone's like, oh, they came there to watch the ark show up and now they see the cloud and everyone's proclaiming praises and this happened this happened in time space and matter 
And it's a prelude for what's going to happen for us in Revelation chapter 5. Because heaven is praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord. And it's, it's our future. And if the bronze altar outside is faith, and if the inside gold is fact, then really the cloud is fullness. Because this is where sinful men and holy God come together in a fellowship of fullness. Because at this, it's a glimpse of what eternity is like. Because the presence overwhelmed them as they were praising him, and he met him there. And so it reminds us that Jesus really is a lot like the cloud. Because the Lord brought his glory to them in that cloud. The Lord was there. The gold, the perfection, the holy of holies, the cherubim, the bronze altar, the oxen, the sin, the blood, they merged together at the cloud. Just like we're told in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's but one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's like the cloud. He reconciles this bronze altar, this, this killing place. He reconciles it with the holy place. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. If we believe that, and we should, we will never be swayed with false religions and false philosophies. We'll never pursue the, the wit and wisdom of men that would lead us astray or women. We will know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. It might get us in trouble, could get you burned at the stake, thrown off a cliff or fed to the lions, but know this, we're just passing through anyways. In that cloud is where sinful men and holy God met in the midst of the praise. When those apostles stood before the Sanhedrin Council in Acts chapter 4, they said, there's no other name than the name of Jesus Christ given among men by which we must be saved. And that is who we are. We're the church. We're, we're gathered here every week. We read two, three chapters on a Tuesday to see Jesus in those chapters, to see the promises, to see the truth. We're here on a Saturday singing praise songs to the Lord to, to, to learn biblical truths centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what they mean for our life as we try and be faithful in time to be ready for eternity. See, in this story, there's outside, inside, and the cloud, and it all revolves around the house of God. And we are the house of God as we're gathered here as the church. And this glory that they saw is our future glory. And I mentioned earlier, and I close now, just sharing this. But we're told that all of life's sufferings and hardships are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. In fact, we're told they're called light afflictions. Now, I think we've all lived long enough, most of us, to know that Suffering, sin, death, tribulation, lies, slander, those things are not light afflictions. But compared with the glory we're going to have in eternity with the Lord, they're light afflictions and they're not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that we're going to have. See, we're going to glory. When we leave this dimension, when this mortal puts on immortality, this corruptible puts on incorruptibility, we are going to glory. Those loved ones that we love who've already moved on to eternity, they are in glory. They have glorified bodies. There is no more suffering. There's no more incompleteness. They are glorified. They're in glory. 
And it's the fullness of all things that God intended when he made time, space, and matter in the beginning outside of time, space, and matter as Lord of the universe and Lord of all eternity. He's made us for glory, to know his glory, to be in glory with him in his glory. Romans tells us in Romans 8 there, before it says that all things work together for good, those who love God, that as we share in his suffering, we will share in his glory. Now, I think most of us are not motivated by some concept that we can have glory in heaven. I, you don't think like that. I don't really think like that. We want to be faithful in time, and we'll let eternity play out. But I just want to remind you tonight that in this cloud was the glory of the Lord. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And we want to come here at every service and touch that glory by faith in the singing and the praises and the fellowship and the teaching. And it reminds us twice a week or however often we come that we are going toward glory. So I remind you tonight, body of Christ, worship generation, Christ didn't come so we'd stay outside. He shed his blood so we'd go inside. And we would know the glory. We'd be in the glory and we'd anticipate the glory. Because eyes not seen or ear heard those things that God has prepared for them, for those who love him and his appearing. And I think that's us. Because we love him and we're looking for his appearing. Yes and amen.